I like episodes like this one. Instead of doing a deep dive on one or two things, we're going to talk about a lot of things, including a plan going through Congress that asks this question. Is the answer to our problems having more kids? It might be. We'll talk about that on The Corey Act Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. Various and sundry and veritable cornucopia. Those are the two cliches one might use in broadcasting when you want to say, we're going to talk about a lot today. It's a veritable cornucopia of things to discuss. We have various and sundry things to do. That's how it typically works, but I don't like cliches, or at least I try to uh, avoid them the best I can. And so how about we're going to be prolific. There's a prolificy. I'll do that. A prolificy of topics that we'll do on the Corey Track Show today. So thank you for being with us on WHRT, his radio talk, 89.7, and wherever you find podcasts. I am grateful that you are with us. Let me give you a bit of a preview of what is to come. I got some listener submissions and questions you guys have, so you'll have those. I hope to get to a video where someone calls meritocracy, the idea of a meritocratic society that you get what you deserve, is a racist idea. We will try to get to uh, some lawsuits about Dominion voting systems and something's happening in the media for some consequences around election 2020's claims. But the two things I want to do primarily are around the existence or non-existence of cancel culture, and this is where we're going to begin, a plan going through Congress around children and child-rearing and whether or not just having more kids could be a big part of our solution to our cultural ills. I do need to tell you one more thing. I am the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood meets at 1030 on Sunday morning in Greenville. You're invited. We're going through the book of Revelation right now, and I just got so much information about the... The, the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the, it says pale horse in some translations, but green horse is more uh, more accurate. I'm talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Wow. And how that seems to be, has seemed to work out through history. Man, it was good. Um, I think those are available, the sermons from our pastor, Doug. Uh, and if you're looking for those and can't find them, just shoot me a message and I will get you a link. There's a lot of good stuff happening there. All right, let's do this. I put out on Facebook, hey, I'm doing a show, I need uh, topics, and Matthew commented, what do you think about the Mitt Romney child tax plan? And all of the words, I knew what they all meant, all of them intrigued me, but I had no idea what it was. So I knew who Romney was, that's Mitt Romney, 2012 nominee of the Republican Party for president, uh, just generally decent person, uh, now in the Senate from Utah, Mitt Romney, okay, know him child tax plan, all right? I know what children are. I know what taxes are. I know what plans are. And I love those discussions, taxes and policy. And so this gave me something to look into. I find it quite intriguing. And there are some biblical consequences, some biblical worldview ideas and qualities to the discussion that we need to have. So let me give you the facts of the case, and then we will do the analysis, hopefully, from a consistent biblical worldview. Here's the Mitt Romney plan that's floating through the Senate. He wants to give money to parents, $350 a month to the parent or parents, wherever the child resides. If it's with a two-parent household, that would be ideal, but wherever the child resides, there's $350 a month going into that household up until the time the child is five years old. Once the child is five years old, that amount reduces to $250 a month. So direct payments from the federal government 
into households where there are children. There is, as a typical, an income limit. You can earn too much to get help from the federal government with raising your kids. I did the math. It came to around a little bit less than, I think, 70 grand that the federal government would give to the parent or parents of a child up until the child turns 18. So this is money to help you raise your kids. I'm not going to do analysis yet. I almost made some comments there. Let me stop. So that's, that's the plan. We do that. The way well, you pay for it, because it's, it's deficit neutral. If his plan passed in its totality, it should not raise the debt or deficit at all, because what it does is cut some other things. So the, what's it called, WIC? The, there's a, a nutrition program for babies, I think, that gets a cut or totally eliminated. There is, I think it's a tax break, or like a, you get a tax exemption for the money you spend on daycare, maybe? Or whatever the federal government does for daycare purposes. That goes away. So there are, and there's another pay, payment mechanism where we do, we do away with the state and local tax credit that you can get from the feds, which really only helps blue liberal high-tax states. So we don't benefit from it here in South Carolina. So there's different methods of paying for it. And some of those are just reducing other programs so that it just becomes lump sum. Here's 350 bucks a month to help with your kid. All right. So I think that's all the facts you need. It's it's lump sum payments. It's paid for by eliminating some other uh, eliminating some other programs. Here's the goal. There's definitely some social engineering in this. We have a problem with fertility. I've been talking about it for literally, guys, 12 years. Uh, February 5th was my my radio anniversary. By the way, thanks for all the presents, guys. Guys, you guys all forgot my anniversary, but whatever. Just kidding. Uh, Gary Miller, if you if you happen to be listening, it's been a long time, man. Thanks for letting let me on all those years ago. Hope hope it's gotten better in all these years. I think it's actually 13. Yeah, 13 years it's been. So. I have been talking for 13 years with some regularity about demography. Mark Stein published a book almost 15 years ago called America Alone. He just covered how the Western world is literally killing itself by not having children. That the average American woman back 15 years ago was having 2.1 children per, per woman. So we were still replacing ourselves and growing a little. I think we've dropped to 1.9 recently. So very literally, if we don't have immigration, we will die out. We will be a people that doesn't exist eventually because we're not having enough children to even replace ourselves. It's much more severe in Western Europe where you have fertility rates in places like Germany. I think it's 1.5. I think it's Spain, it's 1.4. Greece is around 1.4. And so they're not having enough people to re replicate themselves. There's lots of reasons for that we'll get into, but this is supposed to be an incentive. Go have kids. If you have two kids in the house... That's an extra, what's 350 plus 350? $700 a month. The federal government's going to send you to help raise those kids. If what's causing you to not have a second kid is you think you can't afford it, have the second kid so that you can, so, and we'll help you afford it. If, you're, if it's keeping a, a married couple from having a kid because they think they can't afford a kid, go uh, go have a kid so that we can, uh, and we'll, get, we'll help you pay. As a, as a culture and a, a culture together, as a, as a government, we will come together and help pay for all the kids. I understand the, the motive. And it's a, let me be clear. That's a good motive. We need kids. It's actually the sign of a healthy society. This is where we do some Bible here. Go back to Genesis. What's the mandate? 
Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Those are dis- different things. They're distinct. Be fruitful. That's not just have fruit of the womb of children. Multiply. That's pretty clear. We, should, we need more people. Fill the earth. That's in part subdue the earth. Go, go out into all, the, into all of the lands. So we do need more people. That's a good biblical thing. It's also the sign of a healthy culture. A culture that is healthy reproduces itself. Is when a, when a culture becomes so self-focused or opulent, that's the culture we're in. We're in a culture of self. I am the center of all things, and we're opulent. We have so much plenty. For all the complaining in the United States of America, we are so wealthy. An opulently wealthy people from the middle class on up. If you go below middle class, I'll, I'll pull back on that. But we all live so well. And children are a sacrifice. And so when we become self-focused, we tend not to want to give of ourselves by having another kid. I tell you, I see a benefit to this. I got a little bit of a Bible thing to do here. I, I've, I've been open with you before about how flabbergasted I am of how the culture got worse over the last 30 years. Because the logic is not there. The people who had kids the last 30 years who had more kids were the Christian families. I just look around my own church. I, I know the Christian families I know have two and three kids mostly. Some of them have one, but they have kids at least. They all have kids. I think of the secular people I know, the liberal people I know, they have no kids most, mostly. There's some exceptions to that. But the, there's, a, there's a real dichotomy here. Traditional Christian conservative types tend to have more kids Liberal, secular types tend to have fewer kids. Again, there's exceptions to all these rules. I'm giving you tendencies. And if that's true, how on earth did we get to this secular, progressive world? How did we get to a place where left-wingism, leftism and secularism dominates every single facet of our culture? Well, it's an indictment to parenting. It's an indictment to the silly centers that some churches call youth groups. It's an, it's an indictment on some folks who, sh- who should have raised their kids more intentionally. It, it is. It's an indictment on kids, on parents who highly valued sports or theater or pageants over discipleship. Because we had more kids. And then we sent them off into the world, and the world won. The world made them worldly, made them secular, gave, gave, uh, infected them with other, those other ideas. Not that they shouldn't have encountered those ideas. It's important for kids to encounter all the ideas and then to have enough of a biblical worldview to filter through them and grab onto that which is true and, re- and reject that which is false. But let, let's say that this is a, a system implemented and we actually started having more kids. There's, there's even a, chan- like a chance here there's some hope for the future because the people who have more kids have the worldview to raise them well. I'm not... Let me uh, uh, slow down, Corey. Here we go. I have resented for almost my entire adult life. I'm talking even my, my, my teen years. I did not like Christian voices who said to parents, maybe even made parents feel guilty, get your kids out of public schools. Don't send them there. They're getting all this garbage. That's part of why your kids leave the faith. It's part of why your kids walk away from the things you taught them and that they end up with totally different values than you. And I resented that. For lots of reasons. One was Christian schools are expensive. 
homeschooling is expensive. Or at least, I mean, if you're going to homeschool, that means a two-income household usually becomes a one-income household. So if it's not directly expensive, it, it costs the household an income to actually do it. I have been in, our, been in the onside of the argument that there is a place where Christians need to be in the world. Don't cloister away from it. Don't get away from the world. Go, go into it and be different. Be a light. As I see the demography, though, and what happened, I will admit, I, I, what if I was just wrong? I, I was on that side of everyone do, everyone, as I always am, everyone do what you want. Do, don't hurt anybody, but beyond that, do what you want. And then everyone did what they wanted, and we lost our kids to a very secular culture. So, maybe, I'm, I'm rethinking that. If you think I'm, if you have thoughts on that, I'd love to hear them, by the way. But I don't want to abandon the public schools. There's a lot of good teachers out there, good kids. Anyway, so there's some benefits to, possible to Mitt Romney's plan. There, so, so some benefits. Then there is. Uh, well, let me go here. Then I, have th- I wrote down three more thoughts. One is if you, if you remember when we talked about universal basic income, I landed on being able to entertain it because it's a different welfare system. Where I want to get is that we don't have a welfare system, that we aren't a culture of giveaways, where people are independent, that they don't look to anyone but themselves, their families. They look to the Lord for their provision. They don't look to the government as God for provision. I want to get there. We are light years away from there. There is a a culture and a system and a structure and a bureaucracy to unravel that will take literally generations and generations to do. And so when I have the goal, ultimately, to get rid of a welfare system— I do have to live in the world in which I live, and I know for the, the next however long I get to live, 40, 50 years, whatever it is, we're not going to undo the whole welfare system. So the question that I come to when we did universal basic income was, is it a better system? Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, if, if we replaced those, it replaced all the government programs with just a universal basic income, is it better? And I landed, I think, on yes. I think it's probably a better system. Than the, than the one we have. If we have to have one, it's the better one. And so then I think about the social policy that we put in front of families. The incentives we have about single... There, there's some tax incentive differences regarding single-income uh, households. There is, there is like, for example, that daycare credit or daycare tax exemption, whatever it is. The left loves that because it says both parents need to be in the workforce. We don't ever want a woman deciding to be at home because that would be... Uh, against the secular worldview of what families should look like. They want them as totally egalitarian. And so what I, what I land on is that I think this is probably better. It's, it's cleaner. We have this smorgasbord of welfare programs to help people raise kids. This might just be this, and if we're going to do that, because we are doing it. This is not creating a new thing. It's doing a thing we already do in a different way. I think it's more efficient. I don't know if it's... I'm not, I'm not a fan of equity, or excuse me, equality. I want equity. You want justice. But it might be a more equal thing, and that, that matters to some people. So, Matthew, you brought up a really good question. And where I land is we go through all the, the Christian worldview parts of that, is... 
Kids are good. Babies are good. Raising kids and parents raising their kids, taking care of their kids is good. Our culture needs more people. Our, we need to be producing these kids. And we're already providing some kind of incentive by government help. What if we did this more universally? It might lead to more children, and that is a, that's an objectively good thing. And then also, if, we're, if we can't undo the welfare system like I would want, this is a, probably a better way to do it. And so I lean towards it. I mean, I'm sure there'll be some edits along the way, but I, I lean towards implementing that type of thing. That made me think of another point I want to make uh, on some Christian worldview stuff around economics and welfare, welfare systems. So we'll do that when we come back. We'll get into cancel culture after that and ask the question, does it exist? If so, what's it look like? We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. tell you how uncomfortable pragmatism is for me sometimes because I'm a big right and wrong guy so I look at Mitt Romney's plan and go no that's wrong we need to undo welfare systems not make them different and then I do have a moment of just going all right well we're gonna have one might as well try to make it better until we can eliminate it and that's sort of where I land on Mitt Romney's plan there for raising children in the United States and trying to incentivize people to have more kids Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. Thank you for listening on his radio talk or wherever you find podcasts. You can find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me by that name, Corey Truax. You will find me there. You can also find me at Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Glad to have you along. One quick question. I'm thinking about copying my friends over at the Westminster Doxology podcast. Uh, Cody Fields, Bradley Cox, John Ross over there. They have on Facebook something called The Lounge. They have their private... Well, actually, maybe I shouldn't be giving away their information. But they have like a, 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 a way for the, on social media for their people to all be in the same place. I'm wondering, would you be interested in such a thing? Gathering together in, in that kind of like, like a Facebook group and where we can share memes, ideas, and basically you guys can produce content for me? That's, what, that's all that will happen is you'll end up giving me content so that I can use it on the show. So if you're interested in that, let me know. All right, so I had one more thought. As we were going through the Mitt Romney plan, and I try to do everything from a biblical worldview the best I can, that's it. That's what I wanted to get back to. I think I have a good argument for what the biblical worldview is on what an economy should look like. There is... There a, a, a growing slowly, I mean, that's, that's not huge, but there's a growing part of, the, of leftism that will use Christian language and seems to want to implement some Christian thinking about poverty in, in the government. They want the government to do, it seems like, everything for everybody. And I'm always odd, I find this odd, because these are the, these are the same people, even the ones on the left who call themselves Christians. They reject in totality what the Bible teaches about family, gender, sex, marriage. They would say even if they believe it, the government should never do it. But then the Bible gives out some kind of word on generosity, and they're like, and the government should do that, though. Definitely, government should do that thing. Whoa, that's really inconsistent. So... Here's the cohesive worldview that I have. And if you want to challenge it, I'd love to hear it. The state of nature is mankind is alone and independent. 
In a voluntary way, we choose to partner with one another, to share with one another, to trade with one another. And there is no third party. We just decide to do it. And then as we develop, we come up with governance, different ways to govern the group. As the groups grow, we come up with different types of governments. And so Paul will end up writing in Romans 13, and Peter will write in 1 Peter 2, maybe, uh, that we obey our governments. God ordains governments to punish evil and reward good. And it is the Christian's job to live in those cultures, to live a quiet and peaceable life, to work for the welfare of the cities that we're in, that's our relationships to those governments. But when it comes to our, our economic systems, the state of nature is that we care for one another. And we count on each other when we are in bad times. The thing we, we don't have any kind of biblical argument for is welfare states. Welfare states... I say they denigrate the, the image of God. They denigrate the image of God on people by turning them into the wards of others, turning people into the responsibility of others when they have their own talents, abilities, skills. And I, I want to at least make that clear when I say things like, I want to get rid of the welfare state. It's not out of stinginess. It's not out of selfishness. I'm just telling you, I look at a biblical narrative that would, I think says to me as a Christian in cultures that if we can institute biblical thinking across economies and cultures, welfare states won't exist. Governments don't do that. It's, ultimately, there is an idolatry of government that happens on both sides. I thought my pastor did a great job of this on Sunday. I don't, I don't even think he meant to, but I had a synapse fire in my brain about this. He was doing a good job of saying some folks in our tribe of Christianity, found a savior-type role for the previous president of the United States, the most previous one. And so their world seemed crushed when he wasn't reelected, and there was panic and fear. And he was making a very good point. Do not find your consolation, your security in a politician of any sort. Find your consolation and your security in the Lord. And he's right about that, and I also just saw the other side. There are people who are terrified of being alone, not being taken care of, and they really want to, they want to know the government will take care of them. It's actually one of the more formative conversations I had in my life. I was talking with a, a left-wing person and said, I most want governments to just leave me alone. That's what I most want from them. Leave all of us alone and watch us flourish. And she caught that and said, that's the thing I don't want. That sounds terrifying to me. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be left alone. And if, the idea that, for, for me, that there's gov government would come along and be my companion, I do find it backward. I also find it unbiblical. Government is not your companion. It's not your community. We, the believer, build a community in the churches. You're, if your family is a healthy family to be around, that's your companion. I mean, I know, I know this of my own social circle, own church circle. Heck, Say, some of you that listen to the show are personal friends. If your world falls apart tomorrow, you know I got a third bedroom you can stay in. You end up destitute for some reason, and we're about the same size. I got a closet of clothes for you. We got, we got food in the fridge, okay? Like, we'll, we'll take care of each other. And the thing is, I know a lot of you would do it for me. I know I have all these layers of, of safety net 
that aren't government. And I, that's the design. I'm telling you, I think that's the biblical worldview. And if you have an argument on that, I would be glad to hear it. All right, let's move on. I don't know if you heard, but there is some country singer, Morgan Wallen is his name. He was caught on camera while being drunk, saying, joking, but saying of another drunk friend, he was saying, someone take care of this N-word. Morgan Wallen is Morgan Wallen is a white country singer. His friend group was a bunch of white dudes. And Morgan Wallen's career, after having uttered this, is seemingly over. It might it might be over. His his label has dropped him. Cumulus Radio, uh, the iHeart Radio family of networks. So the, the places that own all the stations, they've taken him, taken him out of rotation. So he's no longer played on the air. My understanding is that either Spotify or Pandora also took him out of their rotations. So he has been unpersoned. He no longer exists in the music world unless you go out and get him. You got to go out and get his music if you want. He's out of rotation. And I will tell you, I struggled with this. I, I'm a big anti-cancel culture guy. I am a, I am a believer that the, that the cancel culture in secular leftism is the new Puritanism. You've, had, you've heard me talk about this. It's part of the religious war. You will say what they say, or they will cancel you. They will try to ruin your, your life and your business. And if you say the wrong thing, they will try to ruin your life and business. And then, while I naturally am inclined to not want to see anyone's life ruined for something they say, I'll just admit my own emotions. I heard what he did, I heard what had happened to him, and I said, in, in my heart, I went, good. How dare you? What? We're ways past this, man. We don't talk like this anymore. Never should have done it in the first place. But it's now not normal. There's very few subcultures, tiny little terrible sub- subcultures in the United States, where that kind of language is acceptable. And those kind of those tiny little subcultures, you know what they need? They need repentance. They need the gospel. They need to repent and follow Jesus, if that's the kind of language they're using. And so when I hear Morgan Wallen get canceled, I, I will admit of myself. I went, good. That's how it should be. And then I start to struggle internally. Uh, you have this emotional reaction to what he did. Is it fair that his life is ruined? And so I started to think it through. Uh, we have uh, we we do have this cancel culture. It's real. There seems to be this very popular thing on the left right now to pretend it's not real. But I can give you example after example of those that aren't deserved, and then we'll come back around to Morgan Wallen. And I'm also, by the way, I'm also bringing this around to Marjorie Taylor Greene. I I remember two years ago when Kyler Murray, the quarterback now for the Arizona Cardinals, was going into the draft. He just won the Heisman Trophy, and someone. Dig, digged up, dug up, digged? I don't know what the past tense is. I think it's digged. Uh, digged up tweets from when he was 14 years old where he used some non-flattering language around gay people. And they tried to ruin him. It didn't work, but they tried. You heard, the, heard about this one recently where there was a, 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 young, a young scoundrel. I was going to call him a young man, but he's not. He's a coward and a scoundrel. 
and he's a teenager, and I'm gonna call him that kind of strong language because that he needs to he needs to be called what he is. He held on to a Snapchat video from a young lady who, when like she was like 14 years old, was performing a rap song on her Snapchat that had the N word in it, and so she sang the lyric. And then when she got into a, a decently prestigious school, actually no, it wasn't. I think it was University of Tennessee. And I don't want to be a jerk, but that place is not prestigious. It's awesome. It's a great place. I'm just saying it's not a like an Ivy League place. Where, wherever she got in, once she got in and got her dreams fulfilled, he put the video out and smeared her as a racist. And that her offer of admission to that college was rescinded. And she's having all kinds of trouble because she said this thing when she was 14 in a song. And 14 years later, 14, excuse me, four years later, someone tries to vindictively and bitterly try to ruin her life. The classic case of this is the the writer. She's a liberal writer for a liberal magazine about 10 years ago. It's a little bit less than that. She got on a plane, I think in JFK, out of New York, out of New York City, going overseas. And she said, uh, when I get off the... She tweeted out, when I get off the plane, I'll be in Africa. Everyone just hope I don't get AIDS. Which is a terrible thing to say, but she's just trying to be funny. And I'll admit, back then, I'd have laughed. That's funny. It's fine. It's a fine joke. It's a lazy joke, but it's a fine joke. By the time she landed, she was fired. The internet had blown up. She made an age joke about Africa, and her life was ruined. It took years to get it back around. And I could go, I'd give you more, like Kevin Hart, like uh, getting kicked off of the Oscars. There's a lot of cancel culture out there. Right? We could go through it. And I, I, say all, I say all of these examples, give you those examples as bad ones. See what cancel culture has done. See how puritanical it is that you must obey all of its rules or it will destroy you. And then it went and destroyed Morgan Wallen, and I went, good, you deserve it. And then something in me starts to churn. Why? Why are you this way? What's the exception? And for that matter, I see Marjorie Taylor Greene. If you don't know the story, she is the insane kook who got elected to Congress from the northwestern part of Georgia who has posted things in the past about 9-11 being an inside job, the Pentagon not getting hit by a plane, but being hit by a missile instead. She was uh, election-stolen people. like she, She's a conspiracy theorist uh, that the Stone, Douglas, Stoneman, Stoneman Douglas, whatever that is, the shooting down in Florida was a, was a fake. She has been a conspiracy person. And what's because the media is cynical and biased, they tried to make her the face of the Republican Party, even though she's a nothing and a nobody in a very red district who happened to win a primary and not have an opponent in the general. Tried to make her the face of it, and she is sort of getting canceled. Like, she's being removed from committees in Congress. And and even with that one, I remember seeing it and going, good, you you deserve that. If you behave in a certain way, you deserve the consequences of the way you behave. So what is my distinction? And I, I struggled with this. Why am I so upset at cancel culture? And then what happens to Marjorie Taylor Greene and to Morgan Wallen? I go, good. Justice. That feels right. And I think I came up with it. There are distinctions in these stories. I think at least two that I found. One is time. A lot of the things people get canceled for, or things they did a long time ago. Kyler Murray did that when he was 14. That young lady that got accepted to Tennessee did that when she was, I think, 14. It was years later. When Kevin Hart told a fine joke, he told a joke that was like, if I, if my son, 
my, my son plays with dolls. You know, I'll take it. I'll take the dolls from him. He, he prays his son doesn't turn out gay, something like that. And then ten years later, he, he can't host the Oscars because he once told that joke. These are things that there's got to be some time limit on your guilt. And then the second one is personal significance. Admittedly, Kyler Murray and Kevin Hart are famous, but they're not particularly significant to any to anybody. But again, the, those two, again, they were old. So they, they, they fit into one exception that I have found in my own head or my own morality. But like the woman on that plane, she was not much of a writer. No one knew, no one knew who she was. That little girl from wherever she is that was trying to get to college, no one really knows who she is. So they don't deserve to have the whole world come down on them. I think of Morgan Wallen, and he's apparently a decently well-known country musician. Marjorie Taylor Greene is in Congress. She has a job that only 435 people have. And what they did was like right now. It happened, and then they're suffering the consequences in the moment that it happened. And I think that's the difference. And here's the Christian worldview on this. We are a people of grace. We have a left-wing secular culture that is puritanical in nature. It will punish everybody and everything it can that doesn't agree with it. We are a people that offer second chances. We are people that invite people into second chances. My argument around Morgan Wallen would be repent of your racism, follow after Christ, and come on in. Be a part of the family of God. To Marjorie Taylor Greene, repent of your idolatry of the United States of America. Repent of your dabbling in insanity and get into the word instead. And come along. Come be part of the family of God. Whereas cancel culture would only say, get out. Get out, stay out. We want nothing to do with you. And I think that is the distinction. I said I had a bunch of things to do on the show today, but I've only actually done two. I know it feels like more than two because we went... We went through different routes to them. Uh, but we got to come back from one more break and try to do a ton of stuff in a little bit of time. We'll get started when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Welcome in for the final segment of this week's Corey Truax Show. Glad to have you with us on his radio talk and wherever you find podcast. Let's jump right in because we have quite a bit to do and not a ton of time to do it. I already mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene right before we get into the end of last segment, but she was also in my notes for another question. Chris asked on the, a Facebook post I put up, she asked me to talk about it, her her role uh, who she, and what the future of, of Republicanism looks like with her. Um, so real quickly, she's way over, being way over uh, promoted. She's a nobody. She's a nothing. She will get a very well-founded, well-funded, excuse me, primary opponent. She'll lose and we'll be, we'll be rid of her. Never forget, we have a we have a, a media that's not disinterested. They have a side, and so they have always been interested in trying to promote insane people to try to make the side they don't like look bad. So she's a nothing and a nobody, and she'll go away. She was in my notes for another reason because there's, there's two stories I saw that I think fit into the biblical worldview category of justice, where the thing that we want in the Christian worldview is the truth to come out. We want light to be shined upon things. So the fact that there's a Marjor- Marjorie Taylor Greene is now being called out on some stuff she said, this is good because then we either have to have her litigate it, she has to show that she has reason to believe what she believes, or shut up and recant. 
and she picked shut up and recant. She went on the House floor to, to, and said so. I'm, I got the audio. I'm not playing it because I don't like this woman. I think she's I think she's cancerous. But she went out and said, yeah, I was wrong on these things. The uh, there's Now there's some more lawsuits flying, and I think, I think this should be good news to everybody. There's lawsuits flying now on the Dominion voter system. I think I've, I mentioned to you, and, oh, I played the audio of that guy on Newsmax who had to read the statement. There was one on OAN, too. Like, all the stuff we've said about Dominion voting, we, we didn't mean because they're, they're about to get sued out of existence. Well, now there's, there's more lawsuits coming from Dominion towards Fox News, toward, or at least towards specific anchors on Fox News. These are all good things in both directions. One, we got to have some consequences. When you say things without foundation, when you don't have proof of them, and you're saying them like they're absolute, obvious truths, there should be consequence to that. I wish there would be more lawsuits like this. When people say unfounded things and make them sound as if they're utterly, totally obvious, there needs to be consequences to media about these things, left and right. And if for those that are on the, everything was stolen, the election was stolen, well, now you're going to have a chance to prove it. You're actually being asked to prove it. Now you're going into a, a lawsuit where there will be things like discovery. There can be subpoenas. Go after it. Go do it. Let's go to court. Let's, have, let's go to court over these things and don't litigate it on TV into microphones and cameras. Let's go before a judge to do these things. And so from both directions, it's good. Go ahead, Fox. Go ahead, OAN. Go ahead, Newsmax. Go ahead. Prove it. And to, and to Dominion. Prove it. Show your system. And we'll get to do that in court soon. And it's, for me, this is good. It is good when people who don't take their responsibility serious enough. God has granted them an amplified voice, and when they use their amplified voice to say unfounded things, they should have some punishment for it, and these Dominion lawsuits, I think, will be that. Oh, good example of this on the other side. CNN deceptively edited that video of Nick Sandman, who was being accosted at the uh, March for Life rally back in 2000 and blah, blah. I don't remember what year it was. And the uh, they, they, they sued CNN, and they won. CNN had to pay out a bunch of money. That's good. They deserve to be punished for that, and they were by the court system because we were able to punish media when they do stuff that's obviously of what it's obviously unethical and false. All right, I want to go to the Facebook post I put out there to see whatever uh, to, to see the other things that were mentioned on that feed. Uh, here's just a fun one from Kinley. Kinley uh, posts a story where a South Carolina mayor, I believe down in Mount Pleasant, was trying to, uh, th- they were trying to get their vaccine site moving, and it was a drive through vaccine, it wasn't working, so he called a local Chick-fil-A and let them, let them hold, like let them take care of it, and as you were, you will not be, you will not be surprised, they kind of nailed it, Chick-fil-A kind of nailing the, the vaccine rollout, that's probably what we should do with most federal government programs. If we're going to have them, let's just see what Chick-fil-A can do with them. Maybe they'll get more efficient. It can't possibly be any worse if you put them in, in charge. All right, I'm now scrolling through this Facebook. I think that's the Facebook post I made. And I think that's all. I think it's all I would mention. Okay, uh, so back to my prep sheet. I did get a message, though, from someone about this impeachment trial that's coming up. I hopefully will be done within a week and we can all move past it. I did have this thought. 
Democrats decided to go on the House floor and basically have a struggle session, some kind of group therapy, all talking about the events of January 6th. Of course, January 6th was the day that there was the the rally, the stop the stop the steal rally, but that turned into a fairly small group of people relatively breaking into the Capitol uh, and doing a bunch of terrible things, and more and more of them are now being as as they should be uh, arrested, tried, and they're they should all go to prison for a very very long time. I had this thought though, when I was hearing some of the highlights of Democrats on the House floor crying and being emotional about the events of January 6th. There was the very viral uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez video where she was being obnoxious um, about her experience that day. I think I've concluded something with my amateur psychology, amateur clinical counseling type uh, hat that I put on. I'm going to say something that's maybe overly bold but that's what I do sometimes. I think we've made the events of January tw- of January 6th just way too big of a deal. We do, people talk about what happened on January 6th as if it was a threat to democracy. You are living in a fantasy land if you think at any point that day the republic was at risk. One, we don't have a democracy. We do have, we do have a republic. But at no point did these losers who invaded the Capitol. At no point was the American government at risk. And while there there were five deaths, five people died in that, there's... Some of those were murderous deaths. One was a medical emergency. The events brought about enough stress that there wasn't a medical emergency and a a person died, but there wasn't a direct cause. It's It's not even a secondary. It's really a tertiary cause of death. And so there are certainly some seriousness and sadness... But we've turned it into, some folks want to turn it into something as serious as like 9-11. And that's just not what happened that day. A guy dressed as a goat sitting on the Senate, sitting in the Senate chambers is not 9-11. This is not an event that we need to be remembering in history. But I also think I figured out why. But when I say remember in history, of course we should remember it. I'm just saying it's not nearly as significant as people are making it out to be. It was never a threat to our system. I think I know why though. There are people who invested in themselves so deeply because government is God, because the government is their God, invested themselves so deeply in Donald Trump being a demon. Like, he's not just a bad person. He's a bad person, by the way. Just a terrible human being. But they got so invested in him being something sinister, something beyond just bad, that they need to justify to themselves that they weren't insane. They need to know, I'm not insane. I I didn't... I didn't feel all of these things. I didn't have all these emotions for four years. Uh, comparing the guy to Hitler, I, I'm not irrational. And so January 6th comes, and they're like, all right, I can feel self-justified. I can feel justified for all the insane things I said and felt. And so they hold on to it and magnify the event to make themselves feel better about how they behaved. I, th- I think that's at least for some, the psychology. But the one impeachment thought is, I guess we're finally near the end of getting finished with this. I need everybody just to get over this guy. Um, we gotta quit. We gotta quit him, okay? Everybody, let's let's move on with our lives and get over this stupid chapter in American history. Next, and almost finally, I I was just thinking, like I do. I was uh, listening to a debate, and one of the things I will do is start thinking through what I'm what I'm hearing. And it was a debate around um, the 
is big government, individualism versus versus big government. It was specific to some economic policies. But here's what I ran into. The person on the left, the person who seems to be for more governance, which that's, as we covered earlier, I think is the non-biblical position, was really arguing how much people can't govern themselves. I'm, I'm utterly insulted by that. I'm insulted by the idea that I can't govern my own life. That if you don't do something for me, I can't take care of myself. And I'm insulted for other people. When you look at other human beings as people who can't take care of themselves, I'm insulted for them because you are being super uh, condescending. That's about as nice as I could be. You're just being a super condescending person to think you've got to come along and you're the one with the answer to save everybody from themselves. But here's what I notice. These prideful, arrogant, condescending people, they make the argument, people can't govern themselves. People are incapable of governing their own passions. Okay. So your solution, then, is to take people who can't govern themselves and make a small group of them govern 300 million people. People who can't govern themselves shouldn't be given the opportunity to govern 330 million people. This, the logic doesn't work. So Milton Friedman does a, has done a great job of this in, in the past of challenging folks who are for gigantic government systems the way he says it is. Who are these angels? You talk about like private sector, um, uh, gov- governments being one way and not good for people because uh, people, people are selfish and people want their own money or they want their own power. Do you think angels run the government? Who who do you think are in these bureaucracies? They're people. The same people that you... It seems like some folks on the left just seem to hate people. They're, people are the worst. Who do you think runs the government? People do. And you just want to give them more and more power? It makes no sense. All right, one last thing. Uh, there was a school official in San Francisco who is speaking about several things, um, but she is the vice president for the Board of Education in San Francisco. So you can assume she's a crazy person. And she says a crazy thing here that I think we need to address because it's becoming a part of mainstream leftism. And if you're a, a person in American culture, this is one of the mainstream philosophies and ideas. And so we need to be able to interact with it in a healthy way, thoughtful way. So here you go. I do not know. Her, her name is Allison Collins. Here's what she had to say here recently on a Zoom call. When we talk about merit, meritocracy, and especially meritocracy based on standardized testing, I'm just going to say it. In this day and age, we cannot miss words. It, those are racist systems. Okay. Mer- meritocracy, measuring objectively, a test, that's what a test is. It measures objectively. What do you know and what do you not know? What cognition skills do you have and what cognition skills do you not have? That's often what the tests, by the way, they're, they're often, the standardized tests for college at least, SAT and ACT, are often not testing what you know and what you don't. They're testing your cognition skills, your computational skills. Well, if you're going to say that merit you know, is like fair, it's, it's the antithesis of fair and it's the antithesis of just. And so, you know, you can't use equity or you can't, you know, talk about social justice and then say that you want to have a selective school 
that keeps certain kids out from the neighborhoods that you think are dangerous. That's not the ones they're keeping out. If someone is selective based on the merit of the academics, that's the quality. It's not from where they come or how they behave. It's how, how did a kid d- perform on a test? So, okay, so I'm coming, I only have two minutes now, so meritocracy. Meritocracy is one of the reasons why the United States did so much better than a lot of Europe. And why we're starting to, one of the reasons we're diminishing are, are the systems of grift, where if you know the right person, you get the job. That, uh, that happened in unions a lot. That is a system still a thing in a lot of European countries where the, in the old country ways, you just got to know the right people, be in the right families. And where that happens here, and it does happen here, it's a problem. But meritocracy is one of the reasons we have been so successful. The best rise to the top. And so the opposite, she called it the antithesis. What we have to recognize about the world around us is there are people now who are saying, what we need to do, because there was a past injustice that caused the merit, the meritocracy, uh, to be a situation wherein one group of people aren't achieving what the other group is, what we actually need to do is disadvantage the group that was once advantaged. So they're throw- the idea is not to lift up one, it's to diminish the other, and that destroys the meritocracy. And again, that's the thing that's going to lead us, in part, to prosperity. We want to hold up those who do well. This is biblical worldview stuff. There should be consequences to your actions. When you do well, when you prepare, when you save, when you work hard, there should be benefit to that. When you don't, there should be punishment to that. Read the book of Proverbs if you don't believe me. We don't even need governments or anyone punishing. We just need to let people feel the natural consequences of uh, of their action or their inaction. I need to hear from you at CoreTruxShow at gmail.com, CoreTruxShow at gmail.com, or on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you want to get together in maybe like a Facebook group so that we can get this community, this growing community together. So if you would contact me there about that. Uh, I'll be back with another new edition of the show. Until next week, everybody. Peace and love.